Right. Uh, hello and welcome to another edition of Paint and Pages, the Adjutant's Lounge. Um, today joining us in the lounge is historian Mark Jones. Mark, um, good day. Good day. Good evening. <laughs> Almost yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we are in the yeah. yeah, this is one of the, I think, you know, we, we're both very busy chaps doing stuff and stuff. Um, so we're recording this in the evening. Um, those of you who haven't come across Mark's work, um, Mark, can you just remind us of your Twitter handle, please? Oh, yes, no problem at all. It is the very snazzily named uh, at Mosley Madge. Uh, Mosley has in the community in Birmingham, not Mosley as in Oswald. <laughs> which i feel is an important distinction just to give you an idea of the content of my uh, twitter account well actually I, th I thought you were referring to the car um shows you how politically naive i actually am <laughs> um, but you actually do have um a running mate on your twitter handle sam I certainly do. Yes, Sam, the the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, who who hasn't joined us today. Um, he may well make an appearance at some point. You can never quite tell with him, but uh, yes, he, he yeah, our uh, my uh, fur baby, as I think is the term we use nowadays, isn't it? But um, yeah, yeah, bless him. He so he he's a what I call the silent partner in the account. He tends to not tweet. So, essentially, most of the people I follow are either sorts of people involved in, in in history or historians and dog owners. That's pretty much the kind of an even split between the two at the moment. And, and you know what? Um, I, I think they're both good people. Uh, as a dog owner myself, um, yeah, dogs rock. Wouldn't be without them. Um, although ours is now getting very older. He's currently watching cartoons. Um, and he might make the odd squeak, but don't worry about it. It's probably because he wants to change channels, but he's he's stuck with Tom and Jerry for the next, <laughs> next half hour or so. Um, uh, dog of taste. You know, yeah. So, so Mark, um, I, I've come across quite a few of your posts, um, and, and your most recent ones have intrigued me. Um, they're based around the, the 1911 census, which is... You know, it's quite topical in some respects, this being the, the you know, 2021 the census year here in the United Kingdom. Um, your work is quite different because it's looking at the census taken by British Army regiments, often not in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm going to ask, what led you down this, this particular area of research? It's a really good question, um, and one I'm not entirely sure I have the answer to myself, to be quite honest, but um, I think probably as a bit of a starting point, um, a few years ago, um, I, I decided I wanted to look into my family history, um, as, as many people do, you know, it's a really common pastime. And one of the things I realized quite early on was that actually my uncle had done most of it already. So as most people tend to do, they tend to kind of just sort of, you know, follow a, a linear path and, and almost go back as far as they can. So I wanted to kind of do something. I wanted to do something around that, but I also wanted to do something which was a bit different as well. And uh, it was in, this was um, 2016, so right in the middle of the, uh, the World War I centenary. And it's suddenly, and I sort of thought, well, actually, there's that whole generation which I, I know very little about, apart from sort of snippets of stories. So why why not look at that? So I sort of set myself the task that by uh, sort of 2018, I was going to look at the whole um, a whole that whole generation in my family, and and just kind of you know find out what happened. You know, did they serve in what capacity? All of those kind of things. Um, didn't succeed because I'm still doing it now, um, quite a few years later. So, so, so it's not, it's a complete. Hopefully, I'll do it in time for the next centenary. I think that's my best hope at the moment. But uh, yeah, it, so it's. It, I suppose that's where it started off in terms of looking into genealogy, and for obviously the first time I came across things like censuses and um, birth and death records and the various different military records you you can access as well. Um, also, kind of discovering national archives and um, you know things like unit war diaries and all of that kind of stuff as well in terms of what led me to to the, the kind of the most recent series of podcasts and um, particularly kind of looking at battalion census returns um short answer is I, I wasn't aware of it until i came across a it was on facebook of all places actually oh, the, um, okay. on the uh, birmingham old prints photographs and maps Facebook group. Um, it's a nasty title if ever there was one. Uh, and something just popped up in my feed, and it, it was a photo, sort of an old photo, and it was obviously a regiment, a collection of, I think it was based NCOs, if I recall correctly. Um, and it's and someone in the comments had mentioned, 
oh, by the way, oh, yeah, so, you know, according to the 1911 census, this battalion was in a certain location. And I suddenly thought, well, one minute, they, you know, I didn't know this, but, you know, where do you, I didn't even, I realized battalions filled in census, the census, which with the benefit of hindsight was really idiotic because, of course, they would when you think about it. Uh, but it wasn't something I'd ever really give, you know, given any thought to. Um, and sort of coupled with that was, again, sort of, it, I think this was something that popped up on Twitter. Uh, and I can't, I've not been able to find the original um, tweet, unfortunately, so I can't, I can't kind of reference anybody, unfortunately. But um, someone uh, mentioning about the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, didn't become Welsh until um, after the First World War. And, and you know, sort of it being sort of like, you know, very heavily recruited from Birmingham. And it, that reminded me of, uh, you know, the late, great Professor Richard Holmes's uh, book, Tommy. Um, and he, I've, early on in the book, when he's talking about the sort of the British regimental system, one of the things he mentions, um, I, have, I haven't got the quote to hand, unfortunately, but along the lines of, you know, if you met a Royal Welsh Fusilier and referred to them as the Brummagem Fusiliers, you were likely to have your teeth knocked out. Um, <laughs> which always, which always stuck with me. And kind of the, as I was kind of doing the preparation for this podcast, uh, it did really occur to me that actually the Royal Welsh Fusiliers have kind of been in the background for me for quite a while, really. I mean, I, um, I was bought a book by my granddad years ago now, I probably would have been about 12 or 13, I think, which, and it, which was the war the infantry knew. Um, the famous, re- you saw famous memoir of, of second Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And, like, you know, I, I'm ashamed to say at some point in the intervening years, I gave the copy away or I got thrown away or something like that. And it's one of those things I kind of look back on and cringe now. I think, why did I do that kind of thing? So it would have been so useful for this series of tweets. And it sort of really got me thinking. It was like, well, actually, if you've got all this census information, you'll be able to kind of identify, you know, individual soldiers, how old they were, but also where they were, you know, sort of where they were born. Uh, and not to mention where they were actually located in 1911. So I thought, well, Actually, I've always wondered, you know, how true that, you know, how Brummagem were the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, you know, how, you know, how, how much of that was true. And I thought, well, I'll have a look and just and just see, um, which with the benefit of hindsight, I don't think I quite realised how much work was going to be involved in that. So, but I mean, I, I'm slightly ashamed to admit, I think probably the main reason it happened, though, um, was I discovered uh, that I'd, I'd failed to cancel my find my pass membership um so i had a month of membership i thought well i've done my, the family history stuff i can do up to this point so i've got a month of membership and nothing to do with it so I, you know i might as well set myself a little bit of a hobby and with half term it seemed like a you know a good opportunity and sort of all of those different factors accumulated together into uh into yeah so about three weeks worth of, of tweets in the end which i'm sure everyone's really really grateful for for clocking up their timelines <laughs> <laughs> well I, i'm going to be honest I, when I came across them, um, when you first started doing it, I was, I was exceptionally intrigued because, and this is going to sound absolutely asinine, that I had not even considered that a lot of the censuses would be done by regiments in the United Kingdom because a lot of the censuses that you shared, they were filled out um, overseas in India, um, especially. Uh, and that really took me by surprise. I'm not entirely sure why because it shouldn't have Um so, you know, on behalf of everyone who's listened to this, thank you for, for tracking these down. Um, but leading from that, you know, they were, they were so close um, to the beginning of the Great War and the, and the calamity that followed. It was that well, it was a crucible, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories you've been able to uncover, especially of some of the field officers um, and some of the subalterns, especially, they're almost heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think the as a, a kind of sort of the initial th- the initial thread was very much kind of like a breakdown of of the battalion by almost by region and community really. Um, but what sort of came out of that was uh, sort of a different. One of the things which is great about battalion censuses, a bit like battalion war diaries, is that they're very idiosyncratic. Um, you know, so I, I have a scale at the moment running from sort of first battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers, who's who's census is beautifully organized by you know by company you know so by company with the officers all very clearly laid out beautiful handwriting uh, through to first battalion the manchester regiment which is almost illegible <laughs> it was horrendous to read um but one of the things that really I sort of eventually it took a while to find sort of second royal welsh uh, royal welsh fusiliers um 
officers because they were stuck sort of kind of randomly in the middle of the war diary and sorry in the war diary in in the census return um and so and as part of that i I thought well i'll I'll do a bit of digging and just kind of see if there's any interesting uh, interesting stories because again with my own kind of family history you know very much a working class background and for anyone who's tried to kind of research their relatives you'll realize that actually particularly for enlisted soldiers in the in the first world war that can be quite a tricky prospect because very often there's a lot of information which is missing. Um, a lot of it, you saw it particularly with service records, a lot of which were were either damaged or destroyed in the Second World War in the Blitz. Um, and so I'd always been quite intrigued, really, because I was always told, oh, there's so much more information about officers. And I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. And not having not having an officer in my own family, I thought, oh, well, but, you know, be, you know, so it'll be a bit of an adventure. Let's kind of see what we can find out. And And as you've said yourself, I think with 1911, is I think in terms of kind of the military history of this country is a really kind of unique census because you have sort of three years before, you know, the world goes in flames, you know, where everything changes. And particularly because I think it was such a seminal event for the British army, you know, compared to, I think, even with its continental allies, where you sort of, you had much larger armies, usually with much more recent experience of fighting fellow superpowers, even though I'm sort of imposing a modern term on a, you know, sort of the wrong setting, really. Um, And I think, and and sort of our kind of small, regular armies disappeared over a period of well a couple of years if we're being generous and was replaced by this this great citizens army but it it was built on the bones of that pre-existing um british expeditionary force and a lot i think all every all of the battalions i looked at and i'll I'll talk later about how i ended up going for the battalions that were abroad rather than in the uk but one of the things which is really interesting is all but one of them return to europe to fight or or at least to the middle east to fight um and and it, it struck me as like a real snapshot in time and at the time but when i looked at them my initial thought was well actually the battalions won't have changed drastically in those three years you know it'll be largely the same amount of soldiers i think what was really interesting from looking at the officers mess is actually how much turnaround there was and um, yeah. i mean mo- i'd say outside of the subalterns most of those officers particularly from the kind of rank of captain and above had had moved units had joined other battalions of the royal welsh um serving in the territorial forces um, a number of them would go out with the new armies usually in much more senior positions than they started from um but then so, so conversely to that then you had the subalterns mess and particularly kind of the second lieutenants especially who most of whom were still if they weren't with the second battalion they were with the first battalion um and both of those units served in france in 1914 and really brought the brunt of that early fighting and you have sort of individuals who who would go on to have really quite stellar careers actually um and it was it was really amazing to see how these some of these soldiers had survived and i think one had gone from the rank of lieutenant to brigadier by the end of the war which is which is quite a jump even even for even yeah, in the first yeah. world war um and you know he would retire as a major general and it was one of the it was the governor of jersey just before uh, it was occupied by the german forces in world war Two. um but then so many of them sacrificed their lives and their health um it, particularly in those early the, the sort of 1914 and 1915 uh, we talk about kind of the death of the old british army and, and that's really apparent e- even within the officer ranks it, it just how many of those soldiers were killed wounded un, you know unable to serve in the future um and and the kind of the volunteer army that would follow them really it's it, it's you know it's that, that kind of whole world first world war experience for the british army in one battalion it's it's quite remarkable isn't it really absolutely uh, how these I'm, I'm sorry there was a bit of a pause because i'm just i was just trying to sort of work out you caught me in sort of a, a sort of flow of looking I was just trying to work out where's where's such a, a such a a leap of, of responsibility occurred, and I don't I and there was somebody and when you were looking, there's sort of I'm, I'm listening, I'm thinking, and I know his name is an absolute anathema nowadays. So I know, but Enoch Powell, mm. um, ignore, ignoring the post-war politics entirely, he was a he was a British youngest British brigadier, wasn't he? Um, something like that. Yeah, yeah something like that, wasn't he? Um, 
and even then I'm thinking, with the first war, it was very odd, wasn't it? You had young officers who did exceptionally well, who flew very quickly. And yet you had other officers who would be subalterns or lieutenants for the duration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there were, I think, even within the sample I was looking at, there were there was there were some people who were really difficult to research, and part of the reason for that was just simply there wasn't a huge amount of information out there for them. Um, not because what they achieved wasn't important, and that would be the last thing I'd want to kind of imply, but just because it it maybe wasn't recognised or noted in in the same way. And I think in one sense, the commemoration of, of war dead in the First World War especially makes it often much easier to research soldiers who, who have died, and particularly officers who have died, um, particularly those who died in 1914 and 1915, because there are various different almanacs, uh, you know, which will have excerpts of their life, their service career, which you just don't get for, for soldiers, for, for soldiers in the rank and file. And just talking about those almanacs, because you've included a couple of screen, you know, shots in the past of your threads. And, and again, if you're listening to this, please do track down Mark's threads because they are an absolute wonderful resource of material. You know, um, we, we were talking about, you know, history and what makes a historian. And, you know, and I, and I was saying to Mark, it's passion. Okay, it's not qualifications. I, I'm, an, you know, those of you who listened to me before now, I'm an art historian. Um, and and I, I, I work with people who were just doing it because it was a degree. Other people who were passionate about X, Y, and Z. And what Mark's been doing, this is a passion, therefore it is, he is a historian. Um, so, you know, what he's including is goes way above and beyond your average Twitter feed, your average, you know, your, your average thread. Um, so, sorry, sorry, Mark, I didn't mean, I didn't mean sort of grandstand or anything. The, the, these almanac entries that you found, um, especially the younger, sort of very younger officers, um, and, and these eulogies in print almost, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think if you, if you look at sort of, um, particularly sort of the stuff that the Commonwealth War Graves Commission did in the post-war period, and particularly with individual eulogies on, on graves. Um, and the fact that was that was done so differently across different parts of the Commonwealth as well. Like you, you, there are very few eulogies on New Zealand graves, for example, because that was the, you know, that was the decision. And I think in one sense, it's, it's a really poignant and lovely thing. But one of the things I think is quite interesting about the almanacs is they are very much for that for officers i won't call it an officer class because i think that's well that's true to a certain extent actually i think that officer class changed quite dramatically during the process of the war um but it's something that you don't see or, or, or rather perhaps you see very rarely for the rank and file of a battalion where if you look at sort of what the commonwealth war graves did after you know after the war that you don't see that demarcation on rank you know everyone has that same opportunity to have that same memorial you know we have the same shaped headstones we have the you know everyone has you know you have a number of um, you know have eulogy up to a certain number of characters you know and, and there's a there's a kind of a greater equality if you like in the post-war commemoration um because you know because most families wouldn't have been able to afford to subscribe to an, an almanac and you know commemorate you know their son or, or daughter for that matter um so yeah, there's a slightly bittersweet element to it, I suppose, from kind of historian's perspective. It's, you know, it's a it's a really valuable resource, and it's a really kind of poignant and and like I said, in its own way, a very lovely thing as well. Um, but it does take into account that actually it was very much a you know a class based distinction as well. It was, and I think it's very important at this point to, to point out that this this is Edwardian England we're talking about. Yeah. You know, it's the the Edwardian Empire was class driven. Uh, whether you like it or not, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and these things happen, and, and and there was no spite in them doing it like this at the time because no, it's not at all. No, absolutely, yeah, and no, and you're completely right, and it's a really good point to make. You know, it's it's not done to sort of spite the lower classes, <laughs> if you want to use that phrase, but it it but ab absolutely, yeah, and and, and I think it's it, it, when you're sort of researching soldiers, and I mean there are you know people who are vastly more qualified than, than me to who have done far more work than I have. Um, but it was really interesting, the difference between sort of scrabbling around trying to find a service record for, for a soldier, trying to find a record full stop for a soldier sometimes, where actually by comparison, it, it was much, much easier to find even the min like a small amount of information on an officer 
Um, some are, but some are more are more tricky than others. And of course, I think what, what underpins all of this, of course, is it's having, it being able to access that information as well. Um, you know, so a lot of information is available on the internet. You can you can Google, and if you kind of know what to Google, you can find the right information. But a lot of this information is help within genealogical sites. Uh, you define my past being the one I used on this occasion. Obviously, there are there are a whole range of different websites that you can use. I think that's the BBC phrase, isn't it? You know, you know, the genealogical websites are available. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, and I've, and I've used you know used different ones at different times, and they have their benefits, and their you know some are better. You know, some have slightly different functionality, which can be useful. But um, yeah, sorry, I'm not quite sure how we got onto that. Well, no, it's no, it's not, no, not at all. Uh, so this is actually quite important because this this is how things grow and develop, isn't it? You know, um, and no, don't don't apologise because you know speaking with speaking with you, um, I suppose you know we're both enthusiasts, we're both historians, we we both have an interest. We will do this. I, I think it comes with the territory, doesn't it? You oh, see what I mean? Yeah. And, and and as you're sort of speaking, I'm making notes, and I'm thinking, right? Oh, well, then I need to ask about this, and I need to ask that, and and it's not going off a tangent. It's, it's all sort of interconnected. So the next the next question, the one thing that I noticed, I mean, well, you can't fail to notice, to be honest, is is, is the birthplace of some of the, some of the people in these censuses, you know, um, South America, Mother Russia. Yeah, that was okay. those two, the two from the Manchester regiments who don't yeah. appear to be related. That was the thing that really threw me. I was expecting, well, you know, they'll maybe they're brothers, you know, maybe and and they both. I wish they kept their names, but they were both kind of very English names as well, uh, but and not in a kind of a. You, you sometimes see this on old ship, uh, like sort of Napoleonic era ship records, don't you? Where you'll have someone called, you know. John Smith, who probably yeah. wasn't John Smith, uh, but in 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 both of these cases, they had very English names, but not names you just pick out of a hat. You know what I mean? They had a kind of a regional focus to them. So they obviously so it, it and and that opens up a whole realm of of new discussion, doesn't it? It's like, well, how, you know, you know, these two Russian-born young men, how did they end up in the Manchester Regiment twenty twenty one twenty three years later? It's uh, but yeah, the kind of the yeah, the location was really interesting. I mean, as as I said, when I very first started, I, I was really primarily looking at you know how many Birmingham-born men could you find in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and so what grew from that is actually yeah, how so how diverse and how um how heterogeneous many regiments were as well. You know, you didn't have the, the, this whole idea of county regiments. I think many, uh, many of us who probably haven't looked into it is probably a better way of describing it. I'm sure there are many historians who are listening to this going, well, of course it, it's obvious. Everyone knows this, <laughs> but um, you know, so I, I, you know, you kind of assume sort of, oh, someone from the Manchester regiment, the vast majority of those soldiers are going to be from Manchester or the same for the North, North Staffords or, you know, the London, you know, not the London regiment, sorry, but, but they, they very much would have been mostly Londoners, you think. But what was really noticeable was, I think it, it was interesting. I think both both of those examples I gave, the Manchester Regiment and the North Staffords, both averaged at about sort of 65% of their soldiers being from within their region. So not even from that particular county or that particular city, but within either the Northwest or, or the Midlands. Um, and some regiments were far you know, far less. I mean, one of uh, when I sort of expanded and looked at, you know, sort of the other battalions, I wanted to kind of get sort of a bit of a bigger picture, if you like. What was really interesting was that the rural battalions, at least from the, that admittedly very small sample size, struggled to kind of, make, I think, in terms of their soldiers, really struggled to maintain that kind of county identity. I think um, if you look to the Duke of Cornwall's light infantry, I think it was like less than 10% of the soldiers were born in Cornwall. Uh, you go to the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, I think less than a quarter of the battalion were Welsh, not even from North Wales, where the majority of soldiers, you know, which was the, you know, where, you know, the Royal Welsh had its county affiliations. And I think that, that certainly speaks to kind of modern discussions where we talk about the importance of the regimental system and how it's the back, very much the backbone of, of the army and, and particularly of the infantry, I would say, as well. Um but it does appear to come from, from admittedly a very small sample size. It does, it does appear almost a little bit overstated. Um, but it, it, that's a much bigger project before you can make such sweeping statements, I think. <laughs> Trying to get my, my get out of jail free cards out of the way now while I still can. 
<laughs> please, <laughs> please don't, t- please don't tweet me and be like, "That's total rubbish, Mark." You've only looked at six battalions out of 157. How dare you? <laughs> so... <laughs> Every day you have an opinion, and you, you know, you know, you know, having been sort of observe the military and 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 the changes, and the, I don't know if you saw. There was a conversation um, a few months ago about the regimental system. Um, it was quite funny because somebody was talking about the Anglians, the Ang- Royal Anglians. Uh, and they were saying, well, the, the, the problem is if you get rid of them and you merge them, we we're losing all these fine traditions. And it, it was like, if, if you were to put it in, in real time, it would be sort of the person standing it would be very forthright and saying so. And meanwhile, at the back, the bloke rolling the fag, you know, he's sat in the corner, leaning back in his chair, rolling his fag would pipe up. Yeah, but they've only been about 30 years. You know, it was that very much that sort of response. So I thought that's quite interesting because we, you know, we, we have this fixation, don't we, on, on regimental history and, and you know, um, and this past, you know, my local regiment, if we were to go right, 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 right back, would be the Sherwood Foresters. Um, now long gone, you know. Yeah. Brilliant. You know, it, and it, it's called change, and it's called development. The world has changed. Um, I don't think we should get precious about these things because I think that's that, that can stifle us in some respects. But conversely, I think we have to be very careful not to to go for it and and, and get rid of a lot of history. Um, yeah. We, without first seriously considering the wider implications, um, and, and yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, not at all. No, I, I, no, I completely agree with you. And I think one of the, I mean, I, I, I think I'm probably, I, I don't know if I'm unusual amongst kind of people who have an interest in military history or not, but I've I sort of very much a. An interest for me, and um, for a long time, really, even when I was younger, was was in regiments more often than battles, and more often than yeah. individuals and individual actions. And I think you saw regiments as institutions and social spaces. I think are 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 really interesting, particularly within the British regimental system, because because we put so much stock in it. I think as much as anything. Um, and it's interesting you use the example of the Royal Anglians because we, because was, you know sort of the answer being oh well they've only been around for thirty years but they've remained un- unamalgamated in that time you know they've lost battalions but you've not seen the Royal Anglians merge with other battalions in the, I mean you could also use the example of something like the Royal Regiments of Fusiliers who again that was you know the Fusilier Brigades merging together in the sixties and uh, but then they're down to one battalion now. And, and I think one of the, I've, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but there was a really, again, another really interesting infographic doing the rounds, which was kind of a heat map of recruitments in for the British Army in the UK. Yeah, and, and what that, was, yeah. and what was really interesting with that, because I, I must admit, from a kind of a Midlands perspective, and I'm, you know, I'm very proudly from the Midlands. I'm not from the North or the South. I'm, a, you know, I'm a Midland-born lad, and. One of the things that I always got really narked at was it in the certainly in the most recent. Um, defense reviews always seem to be midlands battalion seem to get the rough end of the stick so you know the all the you know they amalgamated effectively all the midlands battalions into the mercian regiments yeah then you lost the third battalion which was the old staffordshire regiments you've just you know we're going to be losing the second battalion which is the sherwood and worcestershire foresters um sorry sherwood, worcestershire and sherwood foresters <laughs> before i upset anybody um <laughs> but the uh uh, and so now we're down to the first battalion, which is the old Cheshires, which of, of course is now trying to maintain the traditions of four or five county regiments. But then other part, and I'm not going to name them because I'll, I'll I'll get into trouble and people will shout at me on Twitter, and I don't need that. But other parts of the army seem to seem to get through them more unscathed than others. And I think we've actually reached the point now where I'm just I think if you were going to amalgamate cap badges to use to use the inter in the sort of the in term i'm not quite sure where you go with that i mean you've, various people have done kind of these sort of fantasy orders of battle and you know fantasy fleets and all of that kind of stuff and i think that's yes people can be really sniffy about that but i think it's you know it can be really interesting in modeling what a future armed forces look like but very odd but it, they always they always look quite the, the the names for regiments always look quite clumsy and and that's not not and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way no. to the people pulling them together and i think part of the difficulty with that is if you suddenly develop like i don't know you know the king's regiment and the queen's regiment i mean for a start they've already been regiments you know so you know they've existed <laughs> in the british or back before for a start but then 
you know, so I mean, we're, we're dangerously straying towards conversations about monarchy, aren't we? So let's move away from that. But <laughs> especially in light in light of the bonfire on Twitter over the last week or so. But yeah, it's um, it, I think it's it, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult. I mean, I, and you could look at something like what you know, so what the Australians did in the aftermath of the Second World War, where you, you know, you had the first Australian Imperial Force, then for the Second World War, you had the second Australian Imperial Force, which was different to the citizens militia force which inherited the first australian imperial force after the war a part of you know because of the kind of the, the huge amount of stri- internal strife um between those different organizations and, and this is hugely simplifying history and there'll be many australian twitter followers of mine who'll be saying you missed out all the important bits but um you know <laughs> but developing the royal australian regiments in the night you saw in the, i think it was the late 50s and if again if i'm wrong i apologize you know, so actually kind of drawing a line under and going, actually, do you know what? We're going to have a, you know, we'll have reserve forces. We'll have a professional army as well. But actually, we're going to start almost from year zero. We're still going to incorporate all those traditions that made the Australian, you know, Australian forces, you know, the force of nature that they were in both world wars. But we're doing it and creating a new tradition going forward from now. Rather than sitting there and thinking, oh, well, we're going to try and merge the 54th Battalion, the 34th Battalion, the 22nd Battalion to create the New South Wales Fusiliers or something, you know, mm. and, and you, there's almost a part of me that kind of thinks maybe that's the direction. Oh, gosh, I'm really going to get into trouble now, aren't I? But I almost wonder if that's kind of, you know, logically, maybe that's that's almost where we need to go. I mean, I suppose the other opportunity is you, you take the American system where effectively you have this kind of, you know, sort of two, three hundred years of history of, of American regiments um, where they're quite happy to disband units and then bring them back at a later date as their army kind of expands and contracts. I mean, you can look at the airborne units and, you know, see the various different, but very few of those battalions have been in, in consistent use since the Second World War. They've kind of disappeared. They've been brought back as the army has got changed over time. But literally kind of, it's almost like, so you can unpack the history straight from there. So, you know, and yeah, and it's a, you have to argue, maybe that's a more sensible model in some respects for a modern modern age but then you don't want to lose all of that regimental history and what makes the british army what it is you know and that's very central to its character isn't it no it is and you're right it is the proverbial minefield because you have you're up against people who believe that who look at tradition more than efficacy and that's what we've got to be we've got to be we've got to be honest with ourselves at some point that the world is changing um our global position has changed um, for a host of reasons. And the days of the mass military uh, clashes uh, on, on the plains of Northern Europe, they've gone. They're, they're, they're past, I think, really. Um, so do we need to be maintaining an army of a certain size? Well, you know, to be honest, the army is, and everyone's saying it, it is 40,000 below Manning at, at the present. Um, they, they have cut too far. That's, that's that's not really um, in dispute, but but I think you, you you raise a very good point, and I could and I I've said this before. Why don't we just do what the Americans do? Go for a core of infantry. I am now probably going to get blocked, spammed. <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be there's going to be there's going to be, there's going to be effigies of me burnt in parade grounds. But hear me out on this one because actually it makes a lot of sense. Because have you come across the joke, the rifles? You know, the, the, the rifles regiment. I, I am. I'm just very nervous about agreeing with you at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll let you carry on and, and we'll, see, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> There's been braver men than me who've got, gone, gone before me and come out the other side. And, and it's become almost like this joke, isn't it? Um, so we're going to have the rifles signals, the rifles powers, the rifles yeah, yeah. boot people, the rifles air force. You know, it, it, but when you actually look at it, in part, it makes a little bit of sense. Because we had, if, if you break it right back, we go back a few hundred years, we had guards, we had cavalry, we had um, infantry, you know, regiments of foot. Yeah, that was it. Three sets. Um, and naming didn't happen you know, straight away. They were just, they were adopted, you know, post-Napoleonic. Um, and, and on top of all that, you know, we, we could add special forces. Um, which you could say, well, the rifles, the rifles were really the first full-time British special forces by virtue of the fact they were chosen men, you know, 
you could go back to that. So hang on a second. So what we've got in, in essence of our teeth arms, so we've got the artillery, um, big bang things. Um, you've got cavalry, little bang things, big bang things. Um, line infantry, well, you can merge them with the rifles, who also happen to be special forces. Uh, and then you can just keep the guards because I, I, nobody has dared touch the guards. The fact that, that the guards regiments are struggling with recruitment at the moment, like all, all regiments are, the fact they're still about, I, I think some things are sacrosanct. Um, and nothing to do with tourism or anything like that. I, I think they do do a good job because they actually, you know, they, they do a huge amount of work and fill a huge amount of roles. Um, and, and I think that they're, you know, they're, they are to the British Army what the Red Arrows are to the Air Force. I, mean, I, I should probably, I, one of the things I would say, I must admit, I, I'm, I am a bit pro-guard, I have to admit. I, I find it, as an institution, I find it really fascinating. Um, you know, I'll be the first to admit that. Although one of the things I will say is I absolutely agree with you. I think, there are, I mean, sacred cows is the phrase that gets used quite a lot, isn't there? And I think guards mm. very much fall into that sacred cow category alongside, um, you know, Trident and the Red Arrows that seem to be the Holy Trinity, don't they? <laughs> with the with the rifle, with the rifles coming coming in very quickly, I think. <laughs> they're, um, they're always hanging around and loitering in the corner. <laughs> they'll be there. They'll be there soon. But and I, it, and um, I mean, there are many jokes made in service rivalry, and again, I think that's one of the really wonderful things about the British Army. But I think one in one sense, I think um, one thing I'm really surprised in terms of recruitment to a degree is because uh, you know. The, the war in Afghanistan, particularly, I think, really kind of re, re, sort of restated. You know, the guards battalions are infantry battalions. Yes, they do ceremonial, but they, you know, they fight. And if you look at sort of in terms of units that have been deployed repeatedly to Afghanistan, Grenadier Guards, Welsh Guards in particular, again, upsetting the other three guards battalions while I'm at it, um, <laughs> you know, have, have also, all, I mean, all of the battalions served multiple tours, but I mean, in particular, I think, you know, sort of those battalions, I think, were the ones who probably served most consistently in um, in Afghanistan um, and paid the price accordingly. Um, yeah. I, I, the, and thus the same with the rifles as well. Um, you know, so I think if, if I could be wrong on this, so it's worth checking. But the, uh, certainly at one point, I think as a, as a regiment as a whole, that uh, they had taken the the most significant casualties and particularly i think two and th i mean when i was in edinburgh um as a university student in uh, sort of like the late 2000s and i remember sort of being a university student and this must have been about 2010 and it was when uh, three rifles were i think they're, they're in the process of moving now but three rifles who were uh, the old first battalion the light infantry had um I think they were first battalion. I hope so. Otherwise, again, I've upset a load of people, haven't I? But uh, they they had just they had deployed to Sangin, and they were and they were the what they were based in Edinburgh at the time, um, and took horrendous losses in Sangin. You know that you know I'm amazed there hasn't been a book about Sangin. I know we're drifting massively off topic again, no, but I'm, I'm amazed there has been more of uh, about Sangin because I think it has you know it has become synonymous with the British experience in Hellman's, and I'm really surprised nothing's come out of that yet. I mean, hopefully there will be stuff in the near future. But but that you know that battalion and two rifles before them, who an old Green Jacket battalion, they had you know taken horrendous losses in Sangin, um, and for an English battalion to really kind of win itself over to a Scottish city, I think really says something. But I mean, Edinburgh really adopted that battalion, I think, and they had free and they now have freedom of the city of Edinburgh now, if I if I recall correctly. Yeah. Um, and I remember we, we I went along to the. Um, you know the, the sort of a parade they have on the return when they kind of you know usually they march through their recruiting area don't they but they also did yeah. the parade through edinburgh as well um and it was hugely well attended uh it like sort of something you wouldn't imagine in today's age but you saw there were you know people lining the royal mile in edinburgh um to, to welcome the battalion home and i, and I yeah it was it, it was really it, yeah it's something that's always stuck with me you know really um powerful experience i suppose in one sense it, re it really was um again we've drifted off topic haven't we i, I do have a habit of this no no it's quite interesting because it's so this is how things grow and, and, and develop um i mean the one thing i would sort of go going back to the amalgamation especially if people are you know if, if you look at the anglians and one of the things that they've done as they shrunk they the companies then take on 
<clears throat> and and if take on the identity of the old regiments, which is reassuring. So lineages aren't lost in, in their entirety. That's it. They're not gone. They're not distant. They they are they are merely changed. Um, and I think people need to be aware of that as well before getting, like you say, getting too upset about the, the demise of the forty third foot and mouth. You know, because because the the fortieth foot and mouth will carry on their mesh tradition of of, of inducing a, a a Norfolk brown nosed pig into the mess on the third Friday of every February. You know, because courtesy of a company. You know, it, it's that sort of and, and you know that that's not you know, using that as a, as a black hatter esque. Um, example <laughs> because because actually it, and it's nice that companies do take that on um, and the, the Mercians especially the old you know the t- two Mercians with the WFR ties um, they did it an awful lot um, especially during tours you know of Afghanistan in particular um, just sort of going going back to to the guards division um, and and it, it's a note I've, I've made this big note guards division. Yeah, it, it, it's a funny one, isn't it? it? Because it's probably the only part of the British Army that is brilliantly and completely adminned up to the Yazoo, going back God knows how many years. So that there, there is a good, good cache of of knowledge there uh, of research. Is it some? It's not something I've ever looked at because it, it's I've had no reason to. Is it something you've ever ever looked at or considered? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it would be something I would certainly, I, I think I would certainly be interested in. I mean, one of the, uh, when I was looking um, with the kind of the, kind of the um, third tw- tweet thread, <laughs> week three for those who stuck <laughs> with me, for those who stuck with me, um, one of, uh, I, what I wanted to do was to look at, uh, effectively I chose, I decided I'm going to look at five battalions because that's one a day. I can tweet about one each day, you know, and that, and that's, it's a nice, you know, with the, you know, the Royal Welsh Fusers who had already looked at that six battalions, it's quite a nice even number. And I really kind of agonised over what battalions I was going to look at, look at. And one of the reasons for not choosing the guards in the same way that I didn't choose either of the rifle uh, regiments either was simply because they they already recruited nationally after you know in that period and i think it would be really interesting to look to look back and actually kind of see if there is any kind of regional picture in that at all although if the evidence of what i've seen so far is a good proportion of them will be from from london and the southeast because you know that was, that was true across all of the battalions i looked at be they scottish irish welsh or, or english um and I think it would be really int- it would be interesting to see that. I mean, because again, I'm not I'm by no means an expert, but my understanding is sort of that you know nowadays Grenadier Guards recruit across England, the Coldstream Guards have a kind of really unusual recruiting area, which allegedly follows it's meant to kind of follow their traditional path from landing in Portsmouth and ending up in in Coldstream on the on the Scottish border or something like that. So I'd imagine what happens in principle is like where, you know, they'll wherever they don't recruit, the Grenadiers are. And then obviously the, the more National Guards regiments obviously primarily recruits in their home nation, or at least traditionally primarily recruits in their home nation. Although, interestingly, I was reading um, a book I'm, I started reading, I have to go back to it. Um, it's a two-volume series called, I'm just looking up at it at the moment, um, not that anyone can see this on the podcast, but uh, more, for, more, for Ben's, more for Ben's benefit, so I didn't just look like I was looking for inspiration. Um, <laughs> there's a two-volume history of the Scots Guards in the First World War called Till the Trumpet Sounds Again, which of what I've read so far has been really interesting. But one of the things it highlights right at the beginning, actually, when just talking about the history of the, of the regiments, is that if, you know for mo- from the Vic- certainly from the Victorian period onwards, it's always had a strong core of North countrymen from the kind of the northern half of Britain, uh, which is something that, which I understand is retained to this day as well. Um, so even if it, even as the Scots Guards, it you know there was always a proportion of non-Scots within that particular battalion. Um, so it would be it would be something that'd be really interesting to look back on. I mean, I, I'd, I'd re I'd, at the moment my kind of problem is I tend to kind of sort of become really fixated with one particular area and then kind of drift off into something else, which which is a fault because it would I think one of the things which has really come out of this is you know actually settling down to a particular area would probably be quite beneficial actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I, the Irish regiments in particular, I think, is something which is a really interesting research area. And I know th- there are there are brilliant associations and organisations which are kind of maintaining the kind of history and knowledge and understanding, of, particularly of the regiments that primarily recruited in what is now the Republic of Ireland. Um, 
but it does feel like that's a kind of almost a bit of a gap in in general knowledge i mean i think when we look at the kind of the first world war in particular we you know perhaps naturally we tend to look at like english and scottish and welsh regiments we're forgetting actually how much ireland sacrificed in the first world war as well um you know but but you know across all of four of the irish provinces um and so that would be something i'd really like to look back look into i mean looking into the royal irish regiments um it was really interesting sort of seeing actually you know again really you know so at least a third of that regiment was 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 english born you know not even kind of wider britain but english born in particular but actually how much it how you, i think it was if i recall correctly um and i really should know this because i wrote the tweets um that you know <laughs> so uh you know so if you, you had soldiers from each of the four irish provinces um and i think all but three of the counties if i recall correctly so it was a regiment that really kind of represented ireland as the islands of ireland if you like and uh yeah, it. I, I think that would be a really fascinating area. But then I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment about the New Zealand Exib- Expeditionary Force, and probably in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be reading a book about the Australians in the Southwest Pacific. So I really need to just actually just settle down and stop prattling about really, and get, <laughs> actually sort of get get on with something a bit more specific. I think going forward. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean not at all. And, and again, it's quite interesting. You know. You, there, there are histori- you know, there are historians who focus on, on one particular area. Um, you know, people like Peter Caddick Adams, people like Dilip Sarker, um, James James Holmes. You know, they're, they're, and, and, and and I actually think that having an, an all round knowledge helps first, rather than going for the, the focus on the one thing. Having a look at the bigger picture, um, I think that that's quite important. Um, and 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 you and you and you write to mention these books um, as you're talking, because I, th- I think if we if we can take our studies around military history to, to a point where not seriously, but we actually want to grow from them and to understand them, we have to get as much information as possible. And I don't know about you, your, my my book pile is huge. My my to read pile grows by the day, and it, <laughs> and, and it terrifies me because I sat down the other day and I thought. Oh God! I hope I don't have an. I don't. Have, I hope something horrible happens about and get crushed by a falling cow, which is entirely probable where I live. You know, I mean, I don't mean to be funny. But you, you, I'm, I'm half expecting to find a pony in the back garden one day. You know, eating the eating the roses. Um, <laughs> it's slightly berserk. Well, they go funny on the grass around here. The horses. Um, but you, but you look at these books. You think, oh, how am I going to get the time to do all the books? Do the reading. Do the research. Um, but you're right to mention. You, but you still have to do this because I think the wider the wider your scope of base knowledge, the more like, the more easier it is to focus on one particular area. Yeah, absolutely. As as an aside, when you were telling your anecdote, just for the benefit of listeners, I, I was laughing through that, but I was laughing sort of laughing silently, so it didn't so I didn't interrupt your flow, which um, <laughs> rather than just kind of a stony silence and ignoring you at all. Um, you know, so so for, for future reference, you know, just so you know, it doesn't come across very well on on an audio only podcast. <laughs> Um, absolutely. I mean, I think reading is so. I think is so important. And I, yeah, absolutely. I'm one of those people with, uh, you know, a worryingly high mountain of of, of books in my to read pile. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, Twitter. Ironic, ironically, we kind of talk about social media as like, oh, it's the death of reading, and it's all really terrible. Most of my book recommendations come through conversations on Twitter nowadays. Um, I think particularly when you start to really dig into a subject as well. I mean. Uh, I think, I mean, for, for me, in terms of military, like reading a lot about military history, I mean, that's something I've kind of probably done more so in the last probably 10 years or so of my life than I have beforehand. Um, and one of the things which really uh, kind of sparked that, I think, was kind of I th- reading. And again, this is where I'm treading into very dangerous territory, so I'm going to try my best to avoid this. But reading probably what would be referred to as popular histories, if if you like, Um Although this is this is again treading into very dangerous territory of, of potentially upsetting people, uh, but give those books really giving you an, an overview for a subject, and then getting you to think, okay, well, actually, I'm going to dig into that in a bit more and find out a bit more detail. And sometimes what you find is actually modern scholarship tells a very different story because sometimes more sort of these more popular histories can uh, can, can, be, can sometimes be guilty of kind of recycling existing knowledge mm. sometimes but i think they still have a really important role and i think there can be a kind of a huge amount of snobbery about um 
you know, sort of not digging into the academic literature when actually you need to start somewhere and you need to get your passion from somewhere to start with. You know, we don't we don't wake up one day and think, oh, I'm going to, you know, research this and you've suddenly bought a book on, you know, the Corn Laws. You know, that very rarely happens. It's usually because you've been, you know, you've read something else and you thought, oh, I want to dig into that a bit more. I, I want something that's a bit more in depth. You know, I think very, I, again, if you're, if you're a historian of the Corn, corn Laws, um, maybe you did. Maybe you just woke up one day and thought, "Yeah, that's that's for me." I'm <laughs> fantastic, and I'm hugely supportive of that. But I think perhaps for some for some of us, we we kind of maybe start off with a sort of. I was going to call. I'm going to start calling them popular histories because I think that again, that kind of almost is a bit of a pejorative term. I think maybe more general histories. Maybe that's a better way of describing it. Oh, I, you know, you know, I, I think both terms both terms are valid. Um, oh, you know, and, and again, it's choosing your reading material, isn't it? It's choosing. You know, do do you go for Alan, go full on Alan Clark, or do you go Anthony Beaver, or do you go Osprey? Um, and for those of you who, who've ever who, <laughs> who've not read Alan Clark's histories, military history, especially um, on Barbarossa, oh, you're in for a shocker there. It, it, it's not a bad book; it's a very good book, but it's not easy going. Whereas, yeah. you know, and you know, Anthony Beaver gives a very good overview. Um, um, Peter Caddock Adams' series of books, um, yeah, well, they're in a class of their own, uh, and they and they you know they they represent the guy who wrote them. Um, the same with Richard Holmes. Yes, Tommy like <laughs> Yeah, Tommy in particular, exceptionally you know beautifully written, um, and and then you know on on the flip side, and you've got the things that I write, um, and and I I would say that some of the stuff I do write is popular history, and mm. I'm saying this is the writer. Um, and I would rather my work be seen as that, as that and as fun, because that's what it's intended to be. It's it, you know I was explaining this to somebody the other day. Um, it, it's not highbrow. This is literally sort of, you know something that is accessible that actually hopefully feeds the reader's imagination to find out more about X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. And and I think that and and so popular histories that people like myself write are very good stepping stones and i think that they're key to accessing history whether it be military history whether it be um art history whether it be agricultural history i've got a few agricultural history books you know you know not corn law uh, mainly shed design <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope, I said, well, if if you do decide to do a book on the core laws, I hope I get mentioned in the you know sort of the, the dedication at the front. <laughs> Inspired by Mark Jones, an off the cuff remark thirteenth exactly. of, of April two thousand and one, twenty 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 one, led to my nervous near nervous breakdown on the core laws. Um, although you know, as you were saying it, I've got this really horrible sinking feeling that in my special book upstairs, my my agricultural books. There is something on the core laws in there. <laughs> I mean, I mean I do, but I, you see, I, I, the thing is, though, I, I love that. I love I love a niche history book. I, I, I just, I, well, and it's not just history. It can be social. It can be like social studies or any kind of area of work. But I, I love I, I love the really niche stuff. I, I think it's I think it, that's what's really fascinating. I love the kind of the kind of the dedication and love and research that has gone into those books. But then that's equally true. I mean, I. Yeah, equally true of I think of any book anyone writes I like to think there's a you know it's got their personality and you know the the kind of the love for the subject matter and I think you know I think the fundamental skill of of, of writers and I think of books is that they're readable first and foremost and if it inspires people to either learn more and dig deeper into a particular topic area then it's done its job hasn't it as far as I'm concerned Absolutely, and, and the same can be said. You know, sort of, we're almost going to full circle here about what we put on social media, um, mm. and it, what and how you present information. Um, I, I don't tend to do the, the big military history threads because there are people like yourself who are far better at it than I am. Um, and if I was to do a military history thread on the on the history of, of, of things that I find particularly interesting, I can guarantee not everyone does. Um, I, I you know I'd I'd love to do a, th a thread seriously on military saddles from mm. from from Cromwellian era right up until 1928 when you know. However, I won't do that because I don't believe that humanity is ready for that, and I'm not going to uh, lose followers over over because people are saying there's this fixation with leather. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it potentially opens you up to a whole new audience. <laughs> so, <laughs> just very, very niche indeed. But 
but this this but this sort of brings us back to the fact that you know writing any thread is is actually quite hard. And I think we've all seen the military history threads. Um, that you, you look at them, and within about the second para, second line of the first tweet, you think, "God, this no." Um, we, 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 I mean, there was there was Andreas who spoke with us before, who had a. Um, oh, I love his account. Uh, Crusade yeah. project is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he's gone. Yeah, no, I'm, I was gutted to hear that. Yeah, he's, However, uh, I've got a sneaky suspicion he's back as something else. <laughs> he's lurking somewhere in the court. If, you, if you're is. listening, if you're listening, Andreas, please come back. And the other chap who's really, really very good is Gary from Calais. Mm, yeah, no, he's really good accounts. Um, I've, uh, I've started following recently, actually. Yeah, yeah, he, he's 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 very good at doing a, a, the, the Twitter story. And much like yourself, you you, you can take what is on, on the face of it, exceptionally dry subject, and make it very interesting. And it, and it's giving. It's opening up an element to social history, almost, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, definitely. Um, I mean, I no, sorry, you go first, Ben. No, no, I was going to say, and I, I say that without sounding like um, you know sandal wearing 1980s uh, flouncing about time history <laughs> yeah and that's pretty bad for me so but it, it, it is it is a very important social history because it's overlooked absolutely i mean uh, uh, first now you call census analysis dry i think they're very fascinating how dare you <laughs> but no i'm, I'm teasing of course but the uh, it's yeah what's it's, that sign I mean, you're I, showing up at me yeah. <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I think social media is really interesting because I think it, 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 to a certain extent, I think you ha I think it gives, um, I think it gives you access to, to both professionals and amateurs in, in a way that few other platforms, I think, necessarily allow you to. I mean, we mentioned you mentioned Peter Caddick, Adams, and and the Crusader Projects, and a number of other people, you know, and you've got the real range there, haven't you? You've got someone like. Peter, who's a you know sort of a respected historian, who's who's written a whole range of of fantastically well received books, who is very active on Twitter and happy to kind of chat with people. Um, and there, and there are other there are numerous other really good examples. I mean, Paul Reed and um, the Old Front Line podcast and all of that kind of stuff. You know, he's another you know someone I really you know really admire for the work he does. Um, and there's a you know a range of other historians to do that, and also a range of I, mean, I use the term amateur really loosely, but you know people who you know maybe aren't published or you know aren't working within the academic environments who are producing fantastic, high quality, you know material, and referencing and all of that kind of stuff, all the kind of the key academic skills which I think which really kind of elevates the information you're putting out there. Um, and are willing to kind of be out there and talk about it because you know I, I have to be honest with 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 doing my threads um, and I think we need to put it into context you know we I, you know I didn't go viral did I <laughs> do you know what I mean you know I had a very I was lucky to have a kind of a small but very loyal following who were very complimentary and very nice and, and I'm hugely grateful to all of those people um, including yourself Ben I should taste as well but it's but then it's you know, I, there wasn't really any negativity at all. I was really fortunate in that. And there are, you know, there are people who are kind of looking at different subjects. And, you know, I mean, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks or so, you know, have, you know, constantly having to kind of fight battles against, uh, you know, sort of, you sort of people, like, sort of people from the random corners of the internet. Um, and I say this as someone who doesn't have my face on my Twitter account, you know, I have an avatar as well, you know, but, uh, it, it's you know there it, it it can be tricky but i think it has really democratized how we are able to i mean i think you can i mean if you look at news i mean how we access information and news has changed drastically because of social media but even in terms of things like you know military history you know the the access we get to information now is brilliant um and particularly when it's then kind of backed up with you know sources and it and you know the books and the references and all of those kind of things because um you because oh, you can put anything on social media obviously and you know we uh, the, I noticed earlier this week that famous photo from um, of the men all sta standing in the shape of a horse has been doing its rounds again, and uh, you know, so oh, it's the you know soldiers, you know, commemorating the eight million horses that were killed in the First World War, which has been really debunked, both in terms of the you know the purpose of the photo and the total numbers of of equine casualties as well. But it still keeps comes up every few years, and particularly around things like remembrance as well. All of those. 
there was there was one from before Christmas, wasn't there, when they were talking um, when mental health was very much in the kind of the public conversation, particularly with young people being off school, and this you know fo- this photo of um, these soldiers in the trench, and they were you know they were all and you have all these idiots kind of going, oh you know a lot of kids got to complain about before you know kids there rioting in the trenches and da, 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 da. Um, and, and then sort of you know these very very loyal very dedicated people replying back going. Well, no, that isn't the Western Front. That's actually Gallipoli. They're actually Irish, and, you, and your original point is still rubbish. So it's like, you know, it's a constant, that, yeah. ba- it's a it's a constant battle, I think. But um, yeah, I've, I you know have real admiration for people who are like who will put their kind of research. I mean, it's really easy for me to kind of sort of sit there and go, well, you know, this is what I found on Find My Past, and you know, I find it interesting. I hope you do. But someone who's kind of really dug into the archives and. You know, especially, and I think particularly, I think good history kind of tries to push boundaries and tries to kind of look at things from different angles, doesn't it? Rather than, you know, you know, sort of, you know, sort of you know, recycling the same stuff sometimes. Although I think there is a place for that as well, I think. And uh, I think to kind of put something which is so personal to you and which you put your blood, sweat, and tears into, and then have, you know, people come out of the shadows to snipe at you. I know. I think that really takes dedication. I have a huge admiration for for those folks. I, I must admit, yeah, I've only had it a couple of times, and I find the mute button a wonderful tool. Is what I'll say on that. Yeah, one. Absolutely, yeah. No, no, yeah, I think you're completely right. I mean, as yeah. I said, I've, I've been really fortunate not to really yeah. come across it. Um, you know, it's, and I think, I think if you're polite and you're respectful, generally you can de-escalate some of that stuff. But some people will just be idiots for the sake of being idiots. Oh, yeah, they? They, they, they will. Somebody will always know. Something you, you'll always find somebody who who knows better than you, as they say. Um, but, you know, the, the the thing is, those voices now are actually, I've noticed, they're not as prevalent as they were six months ago. And, and I think what's happening is now, we, you know, the, Twitter has settled into this. It's almost like a series of rooms where people go to if they're into, say, football, uh, rugby league, military history, painting cars, brown. You know, they're, 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 there's, there's something for everyone. And I, and I think it's not a, it's not a group maturity far from it. Like I say, we still get the imbeciles, but I think people are now following other people predominantly um, because they're interested in what they their, their output. And conversely, you know, you you can manage who follows you, who doesn't. I, I do block people for certain views which I don't like um, mm. because they're not socially acceptable. Conversely, I follow people who I think, wow, that is really interesting, uh, like yourself, and I've come across some absolute gems. Um, and you, you know, you, you, people like yourself are, and you rightly say, pushing boundaries. You're pushing the boundaries of research, um, and this is where Twitter's coming into its own. Really, um, we, we are we are now finding, especially within the military history groups, that there's a huge amount of wealth and experience and interest, and that's a really important thing: the interest and to 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 to, to develop um, this theme of of almost sort of social social learning on social media. And I'm sure when Twitter first came about and they first sent the first tweet about whatever it was, I imagine, I don't imagine for one minute they thought it would be almost, a, you know, a continuous learning tool. Um, I think they just imagined it to be a, a news feed for banks, which I think it was originally developed for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's brilliant. Um, I'm aware it's getting on. Um, we've, we've both been at work today. Both had had long days. Um, Mark, can we have you back? I mean, if you'd like me, um, yeah, absolutely. I'd be de- I'd be delighted to come back. I mean, to be honest, we, there's a very good chance we've we've both been cancelled um, as a result of, of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I think between the the rifles, the guards, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and everybody else, I mean, we'll probably both be off Twitter within, within a few days of this. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> assuming assuming I'm still here, and uh, you know, I haven't and I haven't been hounded off Twitter, then yeah, absolutely. I mean. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, well, as, as I think we've discovered over tonight, I'm quite happy to chat about most things, really. <laughs> and not, yeah. not particularly well, brilliant to keeping to topic. So, uh, well, yeah, there's no, lots, no. lots of opportunities. <laughs> you, you, you know what? I, I think if we'd have kept a topic, we'd have probably had it done in 15 minutes. Um, and it's, it's quite it's, it's quite interesting that, um, you know, as if, any, if anyone's ever listened to any of the Paint and Page podcasts, um, they too tend to take on life on their own. And that's the idea. That's actually what I want to do. Um because this is an opportunity to, to, to engage in, in, in a 
in a conversation with folk, uh, hear their story and hear what they're about, and, and then have a, have a play around with the ideas. Um, and it's nice that you, you feel comfortable in doing that. Um, and we've we've really expanded the conversation. I've been going through my notes now. Um, there's something I, I, I'm going to like to discuss with you. You know, after you've done a bit more reading, I'll give you a heads up. Um, the the Irish, the Dublin Fusiliers, and the Naval Division. There you go. Interesting. There you go. And you sound possibly <laughs> worse possibly <laughs> after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh my God, he's offended him. Um, <laughs> sorry, so, yeah, sorry, my line, my line's going down this end. Ben, sorry to see you later. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Okay, what we're going to do? Um, we're going to we're going we're gonna, to um, move now to the ante room. Um, Mark, I'll I'll have a quick chat um, after I press stop. Listeners, thank you ever so much indeed. We really hope you've enjoyed this 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 chat. Do. Um, check out Mark's Twitter handle. There's going to be a link uh, to his Twitter handle in, in the descriptor, as well as the, the, the two books he, he mentioned um, and the Find My Post website within this. Um, Mark Jones, Sam Dog, thank you very much indeed for your time today. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs>